Now here's a highlight from Coast to Coast AM on iHeartRadio. When you went to 60 Minutes uh, in the early days, who were the major talent then? Mike Wallace, Morley Safer, Andy Rooney? Right, right. It was it was Mike and Rooney and uh, Ed Bradley and Morley. Oh, Safer. yeah. Ed did a great job, too. Yeah. And, and what was amazing is if you came there, if you, you know, a casual visitor to the office, you walk in afternoons, you wouldn't think it's very competitive. Mike would be taking a little nap on the couch with a blanket, you know, blanket over him. Morley would be sleeping at his desk with a cigarette dangling from his mouth. Ed Bradley would be complaining about the noise in the hallway, and he'd be playing loud jazz music to drown out the noise. But it was a really, really kind of very competitive uh, environment. I mean, Mike and Morley's offices were about one inch apart. But there would, be, if Mike would steal a story from Morley, they wouldn't talk for about a year. <laughs> really? Yeah, that competitive. Yeah, they, they, wow. They had, uh, I mean, Bradley one time thought I took a story from him, which I didn't. But he didn't talk to me for 15 years. That's and amazing. So he, we saw each other at a bachelor party. I said, Ed, it's been 15 years. And he looked at me and said, 15? Yeah. He said, okay, we could start talking now. <laughs> were you, when you were at ABC, were you there when Inside Edition was on with Bill O'Reilly? Um, yeah, but we were kind of separate operations. Do you, have uh, you seen that clip of Bill going ballistic? Which one? Uh, there's one where he's got to do some copy, and he's trying to pre-record it, and yes. he, he just couldn't get it done, and he finally yes. screams, "We'll do it live!" Yeah, and uh, you know we yes. can't can't was, repeat everything that they probably no, you, said. You can't. Yeah, I mean, uh, you maybe on cable you can, but you can't. yeah, you can on this show. But no, it's true. But, I was when I was at ABC. It's funny. I I was thinking of you too. I mean, I did a show, uh, I, uh, it was the first one of Lincoln Square Productions, which the news division was trying to branch out a little bit, and it was a show called Strange Mysteries. Aha. Uh-huh. And uh, I don't know, anyway, it was on briefly, but uh, it was with, uh, Ron Reagan was in it, and uh, Chris Conley, and uh, we did a story on uh, animal psychics, and uh, I, so I said to um, the producer, I said, listen, the Belmont Stakes is being run. I want you to go down there and take your animal psychics and do a story. So the psychic went down there, and it talked to a horse. None of the main trainers wanted to talk to the psychic, but one trainer said, sure, why not? It was a horse named Sarafa. And, um, this, and so the psychic is talking to Sarafa, and, and the psychic is telling the uh, owner, listen, Sarafa says it had a little injury on its right leg, and the owner says, yeah, that's true. Uh, and it, listen, appreciates the fact that you, uh, you know, you took care of it, and it's going to really run a great race tomorrow, and it just wants you to know that it thinks it's going to win. So the owner says, thanks. But the horse wants to tell you something, that if it does win, it wants a plaque on its stable <laughs> put next to it. Sona says, absolutely. Tell the horse, absolutely. So anyway, next day, Sarafa, longest long shot in the history of the Belmont Stakes, 70 to 1. Wow. The Belmont Stakes. And sure, and we ended the story with a plaque being put up. Absolutely. <laughs> and with the horse winking at the end, right? Exactly. <laughs> what, what, what do you, what's your take? Because you've looked at this, UFOs. Sure. You've got uh, Jimmy Carter during his days trying to find out what's going on. Nobody's talking to him. Did you ever investigate any of that? Yeah, I, I, I became for a period of time the, uh, the you know, the, the UFO person. Before I get to the Carter story, the way it began 
was um, I come to work one day, and there's a brown envelope on my desk. And I open it up, and it was the Majestic 12 document. Wow. And I was the first person to get it. And I look at it, I read it, I read it again, and I put it back in the envelope. And remember, this is before Internet. You know, you can exactly. the Internet and check out names. And um, so I, I looked at it, looked, and, and I didn't say anything. I thought about it. And then I began to read it, and I said, i got to work it. I can't tell anyone about this document. i just got to work it. Did it look and, authentic to you at the time? Oh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, it, it, was, it was a beautiful document. And uh, I went to the Library of Congress and checked out the names. Um, and, and, in fact, there was a, uh, somebody had planted a document in there, in the Library of Congress, which they wanted me to find. Wow. I mean, that's how sophisticated this was. And um, so, so I checked it out, and I found that there were inconsistencies on dates with people being alive and dead and that sort of thing. And I found that the typeface was not matching other documents from that, from that uh, year that, it, that the document came from. So, you know, I regarded it as a phony. Mm-hmm. So I put it in my desk drawer, and a friend of mine had it was with the BBC, I think it was. And so he, I mentioned this to him. He said, oh, I'd love to do a feature story. So I give it to him, and then suddenly he, he breaks it worldwide, you know, Majestic 12 document, like he played it straight. And, you know, so I get a phone call that day from uh, Don Hewitt and Mike Wallace. I say, hey, have you seen this Majestic 12? And I said, I've had it. What do you mean you had it? I, I checked it out, and it's, it's phony. And I, I walked through my reporting with them, and they accepted it. If, if it's the only document that the FBI labeled as bogus. I don't know if you ever saw it. They actually stamped it bogus. Yeah, I remember Not phony that. phony or whatever, bogus, which I thought was amazing. Anyway, I, I began to do these stories, and, and uh, I was profiling Jimmy Carter. And I went down the planes, and I said, Mr. President, I voted for you because you said you wouldn't release the UFO files. And in, in a second, he said, I tried. I said, what do you mean you tried? He said, well, when I got to the office, I asked to, for the UFO files, and I called the CIA director. And the CIA director comes in and he said, sorry, you, you can't have it. You know, you're, you're a civilian and uh, we can't give it to you. The CIA director was George Bush. Unbelievable. What a great story. Unbelievable. Those documents are real. Yeah, I mean, uh, they have, there's something there. There's something there. Um, I'm I be- not sure what it is. I, for, for that matter, I'm not sure Jimmy Carter knows what it is. But he was new in the job. And, um, you know, he didn't know, he basically said, okay, you're fired. See, I'm convinced that only a few standing presidents were given information about UFOs. Richard Nixon was one of them. Right. And he may have been, I don't think Kennedy got it. Uh, Obviously, Carter did not. Nope. Reagan tried to. I'm not sure if he got it. No, I think Eisenhower knew. Eisenhower, they say, had a meeting with extraterrestrials. Well, you know, there's that story. Maybe you could tell me about it. I, you know, I've heard the Nixon story where he took Jackie Gleason. Yes, down to Homestead is, Air Force know, Base. What do you What do you make of that? And uh, the the interesting thing is, is that Jackie Gleason's wife said Jackie was never the same emotionally after that. Yeah. He had a collection of UFO books and stuff like that, sure. but apparently Richard Nixon drove him to Homestead in in a car himself. He didn't have a driver. He's, and he's the president of the United States. You can imagine the poor soldier at the gate when he sees Richard Nixon show up going, oh you know, God. let me in. And, <laughs> and in they go. And apparently 
he showed Gleason an extraterrestrial in a jar, and the Jackie Gleason just couldn't believe it. He just right. uh, he was never the same. I, yeah. I think there's a lot of credence to that story. I do too. I do too. Uh, I've heard that story, you know, from from other sources as well, not just uh, you know, you know, you know, in tabloids or something, but I, I've heard it elsewhere. There are a lot of people you worked with over the years on sixty minutes, uh, some of whom you shake your head at uh, because of their personalities and things like that, but they hide it well on the air, don't they? They do, and and um, you know, the one thing I hate, um, you know, in a colleague in a, in a, is duplicity. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of different, you know, but you know, it's like a foot. You know, I, I used to I used to play some sports. We're in this together, win or lose, right? And That's right. So, so if things are going well, you know, it's no problem going on that stage and collecting an award. You know, it's kind of that's kind of easy part of the job. The hard part of the job is fixing stories and fixing stuff um, when when things are broken, and um, and that's something I I didn't appreciate in some of the people I've worked with. Um, you know, we're, we're in this together, you know, and, and you know, you've got to remember, the pro- a producer on 60 Minutes um, is doing most of the work. They're finding the story, they're researching it, they're writing the questions, they're putting it together, they're going through the legal reviews for the most part. And the correspondents generally, you know, with, you know, there are exceptions, of course, but um, they show up kind of late in the game, they, they pop in and pop out, um, and they make, you know, 20 to 30 times what the producer makes. Um, and so if we're going to have a hardship or, or hard times, we've got to be in it together. Yep. And that's always been my thinking. That's one of the reasons that my favorite correspondent on the show that I've ever worked with was Bill Whitaker, who's currently there. Mm-hmm. And, and Bill's a stand-up guy. He's, he's there with you, uh, in good times and bad, if a script needs work, he'll be with you till one in the morning. Work on on it, and we, and he and I did the story on the uh, opiate epidemic in America, and uh, it became the single most award-winning piece in the history of 60 Minutes, 53-year history. It's won a Peabody, won a Dupont, it won an Emmy, it won a Hillman, it won. You know, I can't even name all the awards. Uh, you know that it won, and the reason it won it was because we found a guy named Joe Renazzisi, a DA guy who said that uh, the Congress was making it impossible for the DEA to do their job against corporate America in the drug world. And, you know, you've, you, I know you've, you're, you're very into this subject, too. Yeah. You know, the, um, you know the, the McKesson Corporation and Purdue Pharma. I mean, these people were, were flooding America with these pills, addicting America. This is, you know, this was the hot story, of course, before the pandemic. And... Um, you know, we, we found that the DEA was neutered by Congress, and the people in Congress ended up going to work for the drug companies. Um, you know, literally the revolving door of, of Washington. Yeah, they had a and career waiting for them. They had they? a career waiting for them, and I mean, you've done stories on the deep state, and I mean, this was the deep state. This was people who were, who were working in Congress and going to get, you know, jobs that paid two, three, four times if they did the bidding of the drug companies. And uh, after they neutered them, there was one congressman in particular, Congressman Marino of uh, Pennsylvania, who created a legislation that took all the enforcement powers away from the DEA. This is our story. And so we, we exposed this story. We put it out there. Turns out Marino had just been named to be Donald Trump's new drug czar. Two days after Jeez. the story airs, Trump rescinds the offer. 
so, you know, it, it, that's the power of 60 Minutes, and that's the yep. power of the work we did, you know, that we could do something like that and really, uh, and, and really change policy. I did another story on insider trading in Congress. Um, now, you're not going to believe this, but it actually was legal for congressmen to buy and sell stocks based on closed-door information. Oh, which they were hearing all the time. Yeah, they'd learn who's getting a contract and who's not getting the contract, and they'll, you know, they traded on this thing. And uh, we ended up um, confronting um, uh, John Boehner and Nancy Pelosi. Uh, we, we literally uh, we, we ambushed Nancy Pelosi at one of these press conferences, you know, and asked her about how she, she got a uh, IPO in uh, Visa, uh, and she flipped it for in, in, her husband flipped it in two three days made a hundred grand. Um, Amazing. You know, while credit card legislation was winding its way through Congress, so you know, so we you know, and, and that's that story. <laughs> the story was it was based on something called the Stock Act. The Stock Act was supposed to make it illegal. The Stock Act before we did the story had thirteen sponsors. After we did the story. It had 185 sponsors in the House. I had two senators fighting over who's going to sponsor corrective legislation in the Senate. So within three months, it passes the House, passes the Senate, and Barack Obama signs it into law with me sitting in the front row. So that was very satisfying. Did you Uh, ever have any management at CBS, Bill Paley, Les Moonvies or anybody try to step on your toes and kill a story? No, no, no. Untouchable. No. I, was, I was lucky. I mean, there was. I did one story about um, uh, when I was at uh, ABC, not at not at CBS. Uh, a story you may have remembered called Food Lion, um, which was we sent hidden cameras into uh, a yes, grocery I remember store that. chain, and it was a very very sensitive story. And uh, you know, Food Lion basically said, if you run the hidden camera video, we're going to be suing you. So I had all the lawyers in our conference room lined up, general counsels, and you know, I you know, I didn't even know half these lawyers. And so, but to their credit, they allowed it to go forward, and we ended up um, uh, losing the first round, but we won on the second round. And the reason we lost on the first round is the judge said. It's not important for you to see the story uh, to the jury. You know, they were suing us based on some very arcane law in uh, North Carolina, an anti-competitive law. And and the judge said, for the purposes of the trial, assume the piece to be true. So um, the jury said to us afterwards, had they seen the piece, they wouldn't have awarded Food Lion a nickel. Um, and, uh, you know, when, in, when it was appealed, they got about $2.00. You know, so wow. that was a big, big difference. Of every story, and we're going to hit a break pretty soon, Ira. We're going to come sure. back and talk more and take phone calls with you. But of every story you've handled in your career, which is the one you're the most proud of? Boy, you know, it has to be the opiate epidemic story that yeah. I was just talking about. Um, because so many, there were so many victims out there um, that were dying as a result of this corporate malfeasance. Um, and you know now they're you know they've been debating of the judgment and meanwhile the Sackler family that ran the ran this thing, you know, uh, absconded with you know tons of money. Um, I'll tell you that I'll tell you t- talking about you know uh, there's a Jewish word called chutzpah. Oh yeah, um, that's like guts or something, right? Yeah, balls. It's more like it. But you know, so after we did our expose, uh, we got a phone call from one of the. Uh, 
Purdue Pharma representatives who said, why don't you guys do a nice positive story about the Sackler family and all the, all the contributions they've given to museums? I mean, I can't make this up. You know, these are people who sort of spread the pills everywhere. You know, it's going to end up, they're going to end up paying billions and billions of dollars in, you know, to help, um, to help people get back on their feet. Oh, yeah, it's not going to go away. The addiction, so then now they're they're actually calling us to say, how about doing a nice positive piece? That's amazing. Listen to more Coast to Coast AM every weeknight at 1 a.m. Eastern and go to coasttocoastam.com for more.